This episode is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. As a podcast listener, you get 30% off by going to dnafit.com and using the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. Also brought to you by Primal Mayo. Made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy mayo? Who knew? Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Rohde, and with me today is a very exciting guest, Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is the author of seven books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain. Some of you may be familiar with it. His new book, Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life, was released April 28th and is now a New York Times bestseller, and you just informed me, also a Wall Street Journal bestseller? That's correct. That's exciting. All right, well, let's talk about Brain Maker. I am ready. We know that you're a little out on a limb here. Uh, tell me, I know you've... Uh, Story of my life, out on a limb. People say, why do you do it? Why do you put yourself out on the limb? And I say, that's where the best view is. If you're out on a limb, you get a great view of the, of the whole perspective. And you know, people say, well, what you're doing is really outside of the box. Is that your goal? And I tell them, no, my goal is to make the box bigger so that these ideas that finally expand our knowledge base and therefore our ability to deal with such challenging issues uh, is expanded. We want to be able to uh, leverage this new and exciting information that relates these things going on in the gut with the bacteria to brain health. I mean, these things were seemingly as disparate as could be but yet we know that the body is a holistic uh, organism. It's a super organism. And things that are going on in the, in, in the intestines right now are absolutely influencing the moment-to-moment function of the brain, the long-term risk that the brain has for becoming diseased and becoming dysfunctional. And that might sound uh, compelling and scary, but at the other end of the spectrum is to look at this information in terms of how it is providing us vast new ideas in terms of leveraging this information to end up having a healthier brain. I mean, who knew that the brain would be so reflective of what goes on in the gut and that the gut is reflective of what we choose to eat? So therefore, we've got this beautiful dot connection between the food that we eat and the brain uh, vis-a-vis the gut bacteria. So it's a very, very exciting time. 
you know, I'm a neurologist and boy, you talk about a specialty where there's so little to really offer people. And, uh, you know, neurology is a field that's classically been thought of as one that uses the idea of diagnose and adios, meaning, you know, you make a, a diagnosis and there's nothing left to, to help uh, with, uh, like with Alzheimer's and, and Lou Gehrig's disease and autism, et cetera. But now the field has changed. We've suddenly got this science given to us in our hands that opens us up to a whole new level of being able to do things uh, to prevent these and other very, very devastating conditions. So do you think that somewhere in our future, there is a, I hate to use the word cure, but a cure for Alzheimer's and autism and neurological problems and diseases? Yes, ma'am, I do. And if, Eli, if I can take you even to a, a place that is even, I think, more germane, uh, and that is the idea of preventing these situations in the first place. Because if we prevent them, then obviously we don't have to worry about curing them because we're preventing them. And we know even today, as you and I have this conversation based upon research published just last year from the University of California, San Francisco, in the journal Lancet Neurology, that more than 50% of Alzheimer's is already preventable if people changed certain lifestyle parameters over which they have control. And that was published in peer-reviewed literature, but no one talks about it. You know, we in Western cultures have the sense that we can do whatever we want uh, in terms of our lifestyle choices. And then when we suddenly are walking into the room and don't know why, there is going to be a magic pill to fix that. Well, that is not reality. There is no such pill. And your statement a moment ago about a cure, we're you know decades away from curing that disease, though we're starting to see some glimmers of hope. Uh, we'll get to that probably later on. But the point is we do know that our lifestyle choices have a huge impact in terms of an individual's risk for developing Alzheimer's in the first place. For example, we know that becoming a type 2 diabetic that situation is associated with doubling the risk for this disease for which there is no treatment, Alzheimer's. And by and large, becoming a type 2 diabetic is a choice. It's a lifestyle choice based upon levels of uh, physical activity and dietary choices. When you begin gaining weight and, and become obese, then your risk for diabetes dramatically shoots up. And guess what? You've doubled your risk for Alzheimer's. Right. Right. And let's talk a little bit, maybe if, if we can jump into this for a section, for a second, um, C-sections, babies born by C-section, and then the health risks that they face later in life. Well, absolutely. So the reason uh, for your listeners who, who may have just uh, gotten dialed into our conversation, the reason we're having our conversation today is because what BrainMaker really is focused on is the role of the gut bacteria in terms of the health of the brain. That's the connection, basically, that is made in that book. And then we want to ask ourselves, well, what makes the gut bacteria go bad? Uh, and you know, the book talks about the dietary issues, the overuse of antibiotics, genetic modification of our food, etc. But even before that, we want to explore, well, how do we get our microbiome? That's the name given to the this hundred trillion organisms that live within us. 
Where does it come from in the first place? We don't inherit it. It's not a genetic thing. Uh, It is actually first given to the newborn as he or she passes through the birth canal. That is an extremely beautifully choreographed process by which that infant is inoculated with microbes. It's a microbial baptism, that child passing through the birth canal. And those bacteria immediately are uh, entering the infant's digestive system and going about uh, preparing that digestive system to be colonized by yet other organisms. Right off the bat, uh, in the gut of the newborn, there's a very high level of oxygen. And the very first organisms that colonize that gut of the newborn are actually organisms that are able to use oxygen, but that's not the environment that we're looking for. We need an anaerobic, no oxygen environment. So then these organisms change that. They, they reduce the oxygen and then other organisms come in that colonize the gut, allow the baby's immune system to become balanced, allow that baby to be able to digest mother's milk, that uh, there's more bacteria in uh, human breast milk and on the skin of the breast, which is why breastfeeding is so important. Now, when babies are born through C-section, that whole process, that elegant coordinated dance that I just explained is completely uh, avoided. It's taken out of the equation. And that has serious consequences for the development of that individual for the rest of his or her life. Now, to be clear, C-sections are important. They save mothers' lives. They save babies' lives when there's distress. Important that we have that. But right now here in America, third, one-third of all births is happening by C-section and it boggles the mind. You mean elective C-section, right? Like- oh, that's right. It boggles the mind to think that uh, that's what you know, people need to do. And I think now that couples uh, understand that the discussion to have with the obstetrician prior to choosing vaginal birth versus C-section needs to go a lot further than how big will the scar be. You've got to understand that being born through the birth canal is a fundamental event in creating a healthy microbiome, bacteria in the intestines. And because that it, it, the microbiome is formed in that way, that means being born vaginally has a huge role to play in setting up the immune system, setting up metabolism, allowing the brain to develop appropriately, the bones to develop appropriately. And uh, we mentioned earlier the risk of C-section Let's be clear. Current, well-respected, peer-reviewed medical journals are telling us that children born by C-section have a threefold increased risk for ADHD. Their risk for developing autism may be as high as doubled. They have a 70% increased risk of becoming a type 1 diabetic, a significant increased risk, 50% of becoming obese as an adult, just by virtue of the fact that they didn't get the right bacteria at the time they were born. Now, you know, this is all information in BrainMaker, but, you know, I want to assure the listeners uh, to the podcast today that this information is taken from our most well-respected peer-reviewed journals. That's what the science is telling us. This process of passing on information in the form of bacteria to our, our, during the process of, of birth is something seen in animals ranging from mammals to reptiles to birds 
to uh, uh, sponges even. And sponges have been on the planet for hundreds of millions of years. This is a long-standing process. Yes, we inherit information in form of our genome from mother and dad, but we also inherit information during the process of being born uh, in terms of the bacteria that then become part of who we are. And when you realize that 99% of the DNA in your body is bacterial DNA, not the 23,000 genes that you got from, from mom and dad, you begin to look upon these gut bacteria with a little bit more reverence, I think. Absolutely. You know, I have chickens, and when they lay an egg, there's a protective coating that is on it called the bloom, and it protects the permeability of the egg from, you know, getting bacteria into it. And when I was reading Brain Maker, I was thinking, it's like the same thing. It's the mother puts the bloom on the baby, and it starts the whole process of creating the microbiome. Uh, you're right, Eli. What happens when uh, birds are born is, you know, that the chick is inside the egg and then pecks its way out. And in the process of pecking the, the eggshell, and the eggshell breaks, they're pecking the bloom. They are inoculating their gut with the bacteria that mother has imparted on that egg so that that chick's uh, immune system, uh, uh, its ability to fight infection, will all be in balance because of the bacteria that that chick will then take into its uh, intestines. So it's a very powerful event, and we're just beginning to, to gain our understanding of it. I mean, I have to admit, um, I mean, I'm, as you can tell, it's not just the coffee here, it's the subject. But um, <laughs> You're passionate. Oh, I'm very passionate. I was reading last night that there are so many bacteria in the trophosphere. That's part of the atmosphere that's mostly involved with our weather. And that the bacteria floating around up there in the atmosphere are playing a role in determining the weather, the climate of the earth. It's breathtaking. We're just starting to understand that you know, we live in this beautiful symbiotic relationship with 100 trillion bacteria that live within us we provide them a, a nice, warm, cozy place to live, and we feed them based upon the food that we eat. And in return, they offer us up some great things. They help make our neurotransmitters like serotonin so we can experience happiness and, and compassion. Uh, they help manufacture certain vitamins that are important even for brain health. They regulate our immune system so that we don't succumb to, to infections. And on the other hand of that equation, other side of that equation, they regulate our immune system so that it's not overactive, as you might see in a disease like lupus or multiple sclerosis or any of the other autoimmune conditions where the immune system is out of whack. They have a huge role to play in cancer, whether or not we get that situation. So we're just beginning to understand these gut bacteria. And, and what BrainMaker is all about is really the two sides of the spectrum. Number one, how do you get this microbiome and how do you mess it up or preserve it? Uh, what are those factors? You mentioned C-section. The book talks about chlorinated water, the overusage of antibiotics, stress, etc. But on the other side, the empowering part of that story is how do you rehab the gut? What can you do? Uh, I'm not sure if we were recording, but I think you were mentioning how you like to you drink kombucha or, and make your own. And so what can we do 
to rehab the gut bacteria now that we recognize that the health of the gut bacteria is fundamental for our health day in and day out and even in terms of long-term risk. That is a great question that I was going to ask you. What can we do? How can we um, fix it once it's broken? And I know a lot of us, since it starts at birth and we go back to birth and talking about C-section, then you're a little kid and you get an ear infection and you get antibiotics or maybe you have several other things. You get strep throat, you have antibiotics. There's a lot of antibiotics being given out. I think there's hopefully a movement to taper that off somewhat, uh, you know, being more judicious about giving out antibiotics to people who have viral infections versus bacterial infections. But it's happening. It's happening your whole life. And then you end up with an out of whack microbiome and how can we fix it? Well, that's an excellent question. And that's really the cornerstone of why I wrote this book, because when it is fixed and it has to be fixed, uh, we've seen miraculous things happening in the clinic in terms of many of the disease processes I've already mentioned, but also even mood. I mean, mood is hugely influenced by the gut bacteria. Who knew? Who knew that to be the case? I mean, I I thought depression was Prozac deficiency all these years. So, We're now understanding, for example, that depression is an inflammatory disorder and it has its genesis in disruption of the gut bacteria. So the good news is, you know, you put the gut bacteria back in order and we see remarkable things happening. I have a an interesting case on uh, my website, drperlmutter.com, with pictures of a woman before and after who basically... You know, we, we, we brought in all the king's horses and all the king's men to put her microbiome back together again. And uh, you just see what the change, the transformation that happened in this really wonderful uh, young woman. So it's all about taking away those things, removing those things that are toxic to the gut and repleting the gut with the right bacteria as well as giving those bacteria what they need to flourish. So it means both probiotics and prebiotics. Probiotics being the bacteria in either a supplement or in probiotic foods, fermented foods, kimchi, kombucha, uh, sauerkraut, pickles, all the foods that are fermented that are getting much more popular these days, as well as prebiotic fiber. These are the foods that contain fiber, special type of fiber called prebiotic fiber that then nurture the good probiotic bacteria. It's the fuel that they need so that they can replicate and do all the great things that they do. And, you know, these are foods like dandelion greens and Jerusalem artichoke, Mexican yam, which is jicama, um, onions, um, garlic. These are foods that are very rich in something called inulin. And, you know, it's interesting to note that Uh, Americans get about five grams daily of prebiotic fiber, whereas, uh, you know, it's been estimated that our Paleolithic ancestors consumed as much as 135 grams of prebiotic fiber on a daily basis. So, you know, this is one other aspect to uh, the blueprint of our primal ancestors that we're now validating as being so important for our health today. And that is nurturing the gut bacteria by getting back to a, a lifestyle that emulates 
what our primal, our Paleolithic ancestors uh, survived on that allowed you and me to have this conversation today. That's how we got here, by catering to our, our own genome, by nurturing our gut bacteria. I agree. I am passionate about that as well. And, and like I said, I make my own kombucha and I make raw sauerkraut. I make a lot of fermented foods, kefir, etc. And I, um, I use resistant starch. Do you, are you a fan of that? I think resistant starch made from um, potatoes or, or rice is not a bad choice. I am all about the results here, and and that is uh, you know getting amplifying the the growth of the of the probiotic bacteria in the gut. I think that I am um, more inclined to choose the vegetable fiber foods that I mentioned earlier um, because of the inulin content. Inulin really seems to be the, in my research, the best uh, prebiotic uh, approach and uh, does tend to have the best track record in terms of its effects on metabolism. So, you know, that brings up a very interesting topic that type 2 diabetes, for example, is a classic disease brought on by changes in the gut bacteria. And Wow, I mean, I think people listening to that last statement are going to roll their eyes and say, well, what did he just say? So I'll repeat it. That type 2 diabetes is a classic disease that relates to changes in the gut bacteria. It isn't just because you've become overweight. It's because the diet that you chose, high in carbs, low in fat, high, uh, rather low in good fiber, is a diet that favors significant changes in the gut bacteria and these are the changes that are associated with two, uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, last year, I was at Harvard, and one of our lecturers was a Dr. Max Newdorp from um, Amsterdam. And Dr. Newdorp has published a lot of information correlating the various changes in the gut bacteria as they relate to metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes. And then he asked himself a very interesting question. He said... We've proven uh, in animals, in rodents, that if we change the gut bacteria, we can reverse some of these metabolic conditions. And what he did was uh, profound. He took 250 humans with type 2 diabetes, and they underwent what's called a fecal microbial transplant. And that means that they had implanted into their colon fecal material from a lean, healthy donor. And what he observed was breathtaking. He uh, noted that the, the markers of diabetes basically vanished after this procedure was carried out, meaning that he reversed diabetes by using a fecal transplant, changing the gut bacteria in the type 2 diabetic, and look what happened. And I look upon his intervention as really being the first in type 2 diabetes to treat the fire not just the smoke. Right, and it's the radical. The drugs that we give out to these type 2 diabetics uh, only treat the smoke. They lower the blood sugar, but they're not addressing the fundamental problem, and that is an imbalance of the gut bacteria. So, it's amazing. Um, I, I have in, um, in October of this year coming up, I'll be uh, chairing a symposium, an international symposium on the microbiome, and Dr. Newdorp is going to be one of our guest speakers. We're flying him in from Amsterdam. He'll give us an update 
on his research. So very excited about that. I, I think that's really, really radical stuff. And I, I love it. I think it's incredibly exciting. And I read in your book about FMT. And I think, is it not happening in the US yet? Or is it only <laughs> happening in limited amounts? Or tell me about that. As a matter of fact, the uh, FMT procedure, fecal microbial transplant, basically taking fecal material from one person who's healthy to one person who's not healthy, is being carried out in over 150 hospitals here in America, but only on an experimental basis and only for the treatment of one specific disease, and that is called Clostridium difficile diarrhea. That is overgrowth of a bacterium in the gut that leads to this life-threatening uh, event called C. diff. Now, take a step back. C. diff is by and large caused by an imbalance of the gut bacteria knocking down the good guys that lets this bacterium overgrow, and that affects over half a million Americans and kills about 30,000 of us every year. The most common cause of C. diff, which is increasing rapidly in its incidence, is antibiotic exposure. Who knew? Vancomycin. I read it was vancomycin. Yeah, a various antibiotics. A lot of the fluoroquinolones will do it. But you give people antibiotics, broad-spectrum antibiotics, change the balance of their gut bacteria, and lo and behold, suddenly your garden, your lawn that went from being all green, all of a sudden there's a species of weeds that just takes over because you've, uh, you haven't nurtured the garden. And when the, that weed takes over... Traditionally, what the treatment was for this life-threatening C. diff condition was more antibiotics, which is what got you into the mess in the first place. But that treatment, the antibiotics for C. diff, is about 28% effective. The fecal transplant is about 96% effective. So here in America, it is something that is being done, but I will tell you some very exciting news, and that is that the University of Arizona has just completed a, uh, a uh, screening and uh, acquiring a large group of children with autism that they are going to go ahead and treat with fecal microbial transplant. Think about that. Treating autism using fecal transplant from a healthy donor. Now, that's certainly pushing the envelope, I would say. And if your listeners visit my website, which is drperlmutter, drperlmutter.com, you'll see a video of a child, uh, one of our patients who underwent fecal transplant and now is speaking, he's interacting socially with, as you see in the video, with his mother. So this is reality. Uh, it is a big stretch. It's a, a big stretch for everyone to get their arms around. And I can tell you that it's a big stretch for uh, medical practitioners to to get their arms around the notion that the gut bacteria are controlling so many factors that uh, deal with the brain. But that said, uh, interestingly, MedPage today, uh, rather Medscape, Medscape, which is probably the most well-respected online resource for doctors here in America, recently published a big article talking about this gut-brain relationship and cited all the literature, much of which I've just talked to you about, and talking about this being the new horizon for dealing with neurological conditions for which we have no treatment, and that is looking at the gut. Who knew? I, I love it. I love it. Um, so am I correct in saying that the when we are in the womb, 
the bundle of nerves that makes up our brain is also making up our gut? Well, the, the, it's, that, that's a difficult uh, question. I mean, there, the gut is richly uh, involved with nerve cells, uh, second only to the brain. There are huge numbers of nerves that permeate the gut and have their origin in the same original tissue that the brain had its origin. There are direct physical dramatic connections between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. Uh, a large nerve connects them both called the vagus nerve. Uh, and there are also much smaller nerves that are involved in activity of the gut that are under uh, indirect control of the brain and to some degree a direct uh, effect of the brain as well. Uh, but going the other direction, we know that the gut is intimately involved in directing how the brain functions moment to moment, directs how we feel about things, how we interpret things. So there's a lot of merit to the notion of having a gut feeling because we do. Our, uh, the ways that we interpret the world are, in fact, to some degree, mediated by things going on within the gut. A recent uh, study by Dr. Emron Mayer, uh, Meyer rather, at um, UCLA involved giving um, 36 women either uh, a probiotic yogurt, uh, a yogurt without probiotic or a placebo, and he measured their brain activity after four weeks uh, when the diets were supplemented. Uh, using a scan called functional MRI. And when the women were in the MRI machine, they were showing them uh, photographs of, of scary people, you know, threatening images of people. And the way that the brains of the women who received the probiotics uh, were responding was quite different, quite more, uh, a, lot of, a lot more tempered, a lot less uh, anxiety provoked uh, in the women, uh, provoking in the women who had been eating the probiotic. Think about that. The fact that the the array, the milieu of bacteria in the gut of these women had been changed by simply eating probiotics affected how they responded to the world around them. So, you know, you could take a step back and think about the effects of the modern Western diet uh, on the microbiome and how that affects how we see the world around us and how we then respond. Our actions are dictated by how we feel and how we feel is dictated by the levels of our gut bacteria and that relates back to the food that we eat. Right, right. So in very rural areas of the world today, we know that their gut bacterial populations are vastly different than uh, what we see in Western cultures. And that said, what we also understand is that the type of bacteria, the array of bacteria in very rural places like sub-Saharan Africa, are very similar to the gut bacteria of humans that have lived thousands of years ago because we do have the technology to characterize the gut bacteria from humans living long before industrialization and these massive changes that have occurred in the diet. And before everybody was carrying around little bottles of hand sanitizer every day. <laughs> That's right. And, and as you mentioned earlier, probably one of the biggest issues is the overusage of antibiotics. I mean, what people don't realize is that 75% of the antibiotics used in America go into raising livestock that we then eat. So you say, well, I'm really careful. I don't take antibiotics when I get a cold, unlike four out of five Americans taking an antibiotic every year for whatever reason. But it's in our food. 
and it's changing the microbiome of the food that of the cattle of the livestock that we then eat and it's creating antibiotic resistant organisms so we really have to recognize that so many of the things going on around us are uh, changing the microbiome the cover this week of newsweek magazine uh, talks about genetically modified food and why all of us are wrong all of us who are objecting to GMO. I mean, how the makers of GMO seeds got to the cover of Newsweek magazine, one can only imagine. But the reason we are all so wrong about GMO is because our scientists have not found anything wrong with it. Well, let me take a step back and look at GMO from the perspective of why we have it in the first place. By and large, the reason why we have GMO foods is to make them resistant to herbicides. So you can grow a big crop of corn and then spray that crop of corn with weed killer. The corn, because it's genetically modified, is going to be okay, but the weeds will die because they are sensitive to this glyphosate or Roundup. So what we have to understand is that glyphosate dramatically changes the human microbiome. The World Health Organization just last month, and it was published in the journal Lancet, came out and said that glyphosate exposure is a likely cause of cancer. So when Newsweek tells us that we've got it all wrong, I think we need to take a step back and look at the implications of those genetically modified foods, paving the way for farmers to spray tons, literally tons, of this glyphosate on the food that we eat, and this glyphosate changes our microbiome, and there's been no scientific research that's looked at the effect of the glyphosate changes on the human microbiome, and yet we're supposed to believe that it's safe. That's not what the World Health Organization just published. It's very scary, actually. I mean, you know, sometimes when you open Pandora's box and you start down this path, which you're way down this path, but even just for me reading your book, it's like, wow, it's all rather frightening. And I, you know, I, I am very particular about my diet and ref no refined carbohydrates and very low glycemic and in and out of ketosis, etc. But I can't control everything all the time and I'm living in the world with everyone else and it's just it's so large it's so large that sometimes it's it's a little frightening. Well, I would agree with you and you know they say uh it's always better to light the single candle than to curse the darkness and that's what uh, brainmaker is about it's about lighting the candle it's about what can you do to offset the darkness the the changes that our environment is imposing on us that we can't control completely, as you well mentioned, as when uh, just living in this world and, you know, the times that uh, we have less control over various lifestyle issues, like when we travel or we drink certain water that we're unsure of, et cetera, uh, that, you know, just being in a very polluted world does challenge this blueprint that we've been given, this primal blueprint, this genome that has been refined over hundreds of thousands of years to respond in a very specific way to the external environment, but also to the internal environment. What I'm saying is that our 23,000 genes, this gift from not only mom and dad, but from all who have come before us, 
our genome responds moment to moment to signals from our gut bacteria. And when those gut bacteria have been disrupted and become imbalanced, then the wrong signals come out of our genome that code for things like difficulties with metabolism, inflammation, immune compromise. And that sets the stage for every degenerative condition that you don't want to get. Everything from diabetes to coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's, and even cancer. So it's this interplay between the gut bacteria and our genome that is brand new information. Who knew that the the little guys living in the gut are controlling our genome? And I'm going to make this even more incredible for you. Within the gut, we have 100 trillion bacteria, but we have 10 times that number of what are called bacteriophages. And bacteriophages are viruses that are changing the DNA of the bacteria that are changing the DNA expression of you and me. So uh, that's brand new information as well. So the story gets a little bit more complicated. But I think to make it simple, at the end of the day, what we're realizing is we've got to take ourselves back in terms of trying to emulate the type of environment for uh, under which our genome uh, evolved over tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. That's why eating in a very paleo way and getting aerobic exercise and not exposing ourselves to, to so many uh, chemicals that are ubiquitous uh, in our surroundings is really the way that we can allow our genome, our 23,000 genes to express themselves for health as opposed to expressing themselves for illness. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about our podcast partner, DNAfit.com. They offer cutting-edge personal genetic testing, which you can sign up for, deliver a swab through the mail, and you will receive, over the email, a detailed printout and description of all the genetic particulars relating to your dietary and fitness recommendations and inclinations based on your genetic makeup. It's very valuable information. I found some incredibly revealing details in my report, for example, that I was uh, more oriented toward power and strength rather than endurance, which was my lifelong background. So this type of information with a plenty of support and scientific validation will help you optimize your diet and exercise patterns. Check out dnafit.com and take advantage of their 30% discount on their comprehensive package just for listening to the podcast. Enter the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at dnafit.com. So it's the little guys calling all the shots, right? That's right. And we call these bacteria commensals. And that means in the commensal organisms. And that's a term. Co meaning with, mensa means eat. Means means we're sharing the table with them. They eat what you eat. So you think, I'm going to eat this meal because I like it and it's something that's going to be good for me. Well, now we move to a place of looking at the recipes in Brain Maker, these are recipes that are designed, yeah, they taste great uh, they're, and good for you, but they're good for your gut bacteria. These are the recipes that will rebuild the right bacteria, allow you to rebuild the integrity of your gut lining, to balance immunity, to reduce inflammation, to accentuate your body's ability, your gut's ability to make neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin to improve your mood, to reduce your weight, to reduce your risk for certain degenerative conditions. That's the ticket. And 
that's you know that's the message here is that wow yeah we know foods are good and and, and carbs are bad and sugars are bad fiber is good people have been talking talking about fiber for a long time but now we understand why it is that prebiotic fiber is so important because it's not just that it's roughage so you can have a good bowel movement it's the fuel for the good bacteria to do what they want to do for us right right i saw um autism enigma and I was uh, shocked by how the incidence of autism in people who live a more paleo-primal lifestyle is far less. Yes, and what uh, Dr. Derek McFabe, who uh, was in the, the film that you saw, talked about uh, was these, uh, you know, the, the, they used the group of Somalis. Uh, there isn't really autism in Somalia, but the moment they come to America to adopt our Western uh, lifestyle, then the uh, in, the risk of uh, the incidence of autism skyrockets. So it's not a genetically inherited thing. It's it's a change in the interplay between the gut bacteria and um, what goes on in the brain. Doctor McFabe has noted that the gut bacterial changes in autism favor the production of a certain short chain fatty acid called propionic acid. When he administered that propionic acid to laboratory animals, they spin around in circles and they won't socialize with each other. Characteristics of autism. We have his videos on our website. Uh, he is actually going to be also speaking at our international symposium. He's in uh, at the University of um, he's up in Canada, uh, the University of uh, I'll get it in a moment. But nonetheless, he'll be with us in October. You know, updating his University of Ontario updating his research because it tells us that it can be changed. If it's an imbalance of gut bacteria, then why not change the gut bacteria as a treatment for this illness that has increased seven to eight fold in just the past 15 years? Why not change the gut bacteria? Well, what we've done, first of all, was we started doing um, enemas using probiotics and then, as I mentioned, uh, fecal microbial transplant. We don't do that ourselves, but I, I have a case of one of our patients who uh, underwent that process and basically regained the ability to speak and began socializing. There's a video of this child on drperlmutter.com. It's, it's striking. I'll, I'll be seeing him uh, in a couple of weeks. So, wow, it is very, very exciting. And that, and that film that you saw really opens up our eyes. When, you know, when people scratch their heads and say, gee, autism's increasing so dramatically and we don't know why, people have to pay attention to people like Dr. Derek McFabe. I have a whole section in BrainMaker dedicated to his work. Yes, he's, he's really amazing. And he's definitely uh, pushing the envelope as well. So let's talk about, are there tests for markers that people can, you know, maybe order a blood test and, and see if they're too high in this or too low in that? Or is it really more about giving yourself that good bacteria with kombucha, raw sauerkraut, and giving yourself the prebiotics, the food for the bacteria? There are tests that are available. Uh, there are definitely tests that you can undergo uh, that will characterize the the state of the microbiome, not so much the state, but the type of bacteria, the, not the, the degree of diversity, but also the actual species that are represented in the gut. The problem with that is we don't know if those results then are good or bad. Uh, but, you know, to take a step back, level one, 
if the gut bacteria are out of balance, it will lead to leakiness of the gut or permeability of the gut. And that sets the stage for basically everything that you don't want to happen happening. That's what is the cornerstone of inflammation. When the gut is leaky, a certain chemical gets out of the gut into the bloodstream called LPS, lipopolysaccharide, LPS. And that is easily measured by uh, laboratory. But even easier than that, uh, level two, uh, what I've done in BrainMaker is I've created a basically a, a question list uh, that will tell you basically if uh, you've got risk factors for gut issues or, or not. And they include things like, did mother take antibiotics when she was pregnant with you? Was she on steroids when she was pregnant with you? Were you born by C-section for reasons, uh, Eli, that you and I have talked about? Were you breastfed for less than one month? Did you have frequent sore throats or other types of infections as a child? Obviously, that's getting at the antibiotic exposure. Did you have ear tubes? Did you have your tonsils out? Um, did you take, uh, have you taken or do you require steroid medications for things like uh, lung issues like asthma? Uh, do you take uh, antibiotics at least every uh, one or two years? Do you take an acid-blocking drug? This is really important. Because so many people that have so-called indigestion think that the reason they have difficulty eating certain foods is because they don't, uh, they're, they're responding to having too much stomach acid. Now think about that. Stomach acid helps with digestion and yet people are taking acid blocking drugs because they think that's the answer. Well, r right or wrong, what we know is that these acid-blocking drugs do a heck of a number on the gut bacteria. As a matter of fact, these uh, acid-blocking drugs are associated with increased risk for getting C. diff, that gut situation caused by imbalance of uh, the gut bacteria. Other questions. Are you gluten-sensitive? Do you have other food allergies? Um, are you sensitive to various chemicals that you might be exposed to? Do you have an autoimmune condition like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus? Do you have type 2 diabetes? Here's a big one, no pun intended. Are you more than 20 pounds overweight? Um, do you have, do you require a laxative? Do you suffer from depression? Again, getting back to my comments earlier that depression has its genesis in the gut Depression is an inflammatory disorder. What listeners of this podcast could do, kind of fun, Google two words, depression and the word inflammation. And you'll come up with some really uh, intriguing information from, from not necessarily uh, hardcore scientific journals, but things like Scientific American, Science Daily, you know, places where you can read this information in, in a less uh, challenging way. So that's where we are with depression. Depression and obesity are inflammatory conditions that have their genesis in changes in the gut bacteria. But it's reversible by changing the food that you eat, by eliminating those things in your life that are damaging your gut bacteria. Things like the non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs and the what are called proton pump inhibitors, these acid-blocking drugs that are so heavily advertised on the evening news when they show a person who's, who, who can't eat a certain food because it disagrees with him or her. They pop the pills, they eat the food, and everything's great. 
but there's hell to pay in taking those drugs. Right, and that's not really treating the the real root cause, the real problem. You know, at the end of the day, it's actually making it worse. And what do you do then? Well, you, you take more of the drug, and that further compounds the problem. Right. And SSRIs are, uh, I believe I read in your book, or maybe I saw it on your website, are um, anti-inflammatory. That's right. Uh, interesting. I did point that out because... Um, it may very well be that the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, these are the antidepressants everyone's familiar with, the Zoloft, Paxil, Prozac group of antidepressants are thought to work, or at least they were developed on the premise that they would increase the availability of the happy chemical called serotonin. But it turns out that they are also anti-inflammatory so that their effectiveness may actually have nothing to do with serotonin, but may have to do with the fact that they are decreasing inflammation. But keep in mind that that inflammation has its origin uh, in the gut and in terms of changes of the gut bacteria that can be induced by diet, by medications, uh, etc. I wouldn't doubt, although I've not seen, uh, I've not looked for the statistics, but I bet you, uh, and I'll do it as soon as we're done with the interview today, I would bet you that there is uh, an increased risk of depression in children born by C-section. I would uh, I haven't uh, I haven't looked it up yet, but um we'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. I I had read some years ago about increased risk of obesity in for children born C-section and I never could understand why. I never could put it together. And now that well, I've read your book, it makes so much sense. Exactly. So uh, when uh, children are born by C-section, again, they're missing out on this array of bacteria that will ultimately go on in their lifetimes to help stabilize their metabolism. And uh, what does it mean? It means that the gut bacteria are actually um, involved in determining the amount of calories that you extract from a given meal. So uh, when you have the wrong bacteria, the, a group called Firmicutes bacteria, too much Firmicutes, you're going to take out more calories from a given meal in comparison to somebody who has less Firmicutes and more what is called bacterioidetes. You create more Firmicutes by eating a diet that's low in fiber, that's high in carbs and low in fat. So that's the reason that it's so important uh, that we, we keep in mind that um, you know th these bacteria are setting the stage for uh, uh, things that are going to go on later in life. In the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, way back in 2011, there was a, uh, a very powerful study, uh, it was performed actually in Brazil, that noted an increased risk of becoming obese as an adult by about 58% uh, increased risk uh, in children who were born by C-section versus those born by uh, vaginal delivery. So again, it really talks about the importance of that initial exposure, this, this microbial baptism that happens when we're born uh, through the birth canal. Yeah, it's amazing. So I have the big question everybody wants to know. <laughs> what do you eat? Uh, I eat exactly... Uh, what I've talked about uh, in this book and also in Grain Brain. Uh, my reasons for doing so are based on my understanding of the science, uh, but also 
uh, with a primary relative having Alzheimer's disease. I know I'm at risk and I want to do everything I can uh, to reduce inflammation in my body, knowing that inflammation is the cornerstone of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, this morning I actually had an omelet with spinach and onions and a side of avocado and just loaded the plate with uh, olive oil, and I did have a coffee with that, and I'm as happy as a clam can be. I don't know how happy clams are, but if, if they're happy, then I'm as happy as they are. Um, I don't think I'm going to have lunch today, uh, but, um, and, and, I, and you know we're going out to dinner. Uh, we have a great restaurant that has many of the recipes like um, uh, I talk about in the book. Um, and, you know, it brings up the, an interesting point that, Nowhere is it written that you have to eat three meals a day or the world will come to an end. Uh, interestingly, um, if you skip a meal, it actually is good for you. If you, uh, for example, don't eat after dinner and don't have anything for 12 hours till you eat breakfast, that's good. It's a bit of a stress for your body that turns on certain genes that help uh, reduce oxidative stress, help reduce the aging of your body, help reduce inflammation. Uh, help pr- with detoxification. So nowhere was it ever written. I'm certain that our primal uh, hunter-gatherer forebears didn't stop in when they were chasing the gazelle. Uh, Time to for have lunch. lunch. <laughs> uh, I can't. Uh, I'm on lunch break right now. You know, it didn't happen that way. So there's nothing important about three meals a day. And when your diet is low in carbs, very low in carbs, higher in good fat, you shift over to what you mentioned earlier, a state of ketosis. And even mild ketosis is a state where you're less hungry, you're less challenging of your body with a chemical called insulin, and insulin is made in your body or secreted when you're eating carbs. Eating fat doesn't cause insulin secretion. So when you're eating lower on the carb uh, markers and higher on the fat markers, you're getting calories without stimulating insulin. And, and that's, uh, that's really important because you have less uh, peaks and valleys uh, as it relates to blood sugar, and therefore your uh, appetite is under more control. So when you're burning fat, you know, you're less hungry, and you're not worried about the fact that you missed a meal. You don't even think about it. No, and that's kind of my favorite part because it's a freedom that I didn't have before when I was living a different lifestyle of high carb, low fat. And I really feel like it's it's a freedom of, wow, I'm not a slave to, oh my gosh, I'm starving. I have to eat, I have to eat, I have to eat, you know, because the tank was empty. Yeah, it's lunchtime. What are we going to do now? Well, you know, our hunter-gatherer forebears, and the reason that I, I keep bringing that up is because that's the genome that we still possess. It hasn't changed uh, to any significant degree. And we evolved uh, a metabolism and a physiology, uh, basically, that allowed us to go long periods of time and burn fat as an extremely efficient fuel, as opposed to throwing gasoline on a flame, which is what happens when you burn carbohydrate. When we're burning fat as a fuel, we produce more of what are called the ATP molecules. And again, the peaks and valleys of of our blood sugar aren't changing. Fat is the preferred fuel for the brain so we can keep our wits about us. And that served us well in times of food scarcity, allowing us to, to get through those times of, of lean, when we were lean and couldn't find food and survive. Now there is no food scarcity. And the foods that are so widely available 
are such high-carbohydrate foods uh, that it's no wonder that people are gaining weight left, right, and center, and that the human microbiome, the gut bacteria, has been so dramatically and suddenly changed. And that is the cornerstone of all of this explosion of degenerative conditions from obesity to diabetes and even coronary artery disease and cancer, et cetera, coming from the fact that we're changing our gut bacteria based upon these inappropriate uh, food choices. Right. I, um, similar to you, I have someone in my family who has an autoimmune disease, which is kind of how I started down this path in the first place. And I want to know if you have any advice for people like me. I'm a certified primal blueprint coach and oftentimes I I mean, I know you obviously get a lot of pushback, but I do too in a different way where people say, I don't understand why you're telling me to eat fat. I don't understand why you're telling me, you know, these things that I have entrenched dogma in my brain. I can't wrap my head around it. Uh, I love the question because what I do in that situation, and, you know, please understand that's a situation that I'm in at least on a daily basis. Um, you know, people say I shouldn't eat. E Why would you ever recommend people to eat eggs? Eggs have a c cholesterol of all things. Well, we've always eaten cholesterol. It's one. It's it's a, a fundamental necessity for us to eat foods that have cholesterol. And you know, I, I my argument. I hate that word. My discussion uh, is centered on uh, two important points. Number one, humans have never eaten a low fat, high carb diet ever. Never in our entire history. Just. It just started 30 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, maybe in the early 1800s when people started uh, bringing sugar in from the Caribbean. We didn't do it before that. And people say, well, we've always had bread. We've always eaten wheat. No, that, you know, agriculture began 10,000 years ago. That's, that was a moment ago in our existence. So the, the diet that we've eaten has been a high-fat diet, a diet based upon what we could find or dig up, or kill, or what was already dead. Uh, these are foods with animal protein, animal fat, that wasn't animals that were raised on antibiotics and fed corn, having high levels of inflammatory omega-6s. But that's what we survived on. And when food is looked upon not just in terms of its macronutrients of fat, carbs, and protein, and micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals, but when you look at food as representing information, for both our genome and the genome of the microbiome, meaning that the food we eat changes our gene expression and changes the bacterial count and a, a array of bacteria living within the gut that then influence our genes, we understand that our food choices directly change our gene expression. That said, all of a sudden, scientists have told us we've got to stop eating fat for the first time in human history. We've got to, and, and in so doing, by default, you will be eating more carbohydrate. That has sent a signal to our genome that has led to this incredible explosion of all these degenerative and, and horrible conditions. And it's not just that your guest today on this podcast is telling you this. This is what our most well-respected peer-reviewed journals are now explaining. In fact, the United States Dietary uh, Advisory Committee that met uh, and published their 700-page compendium just two months ago came to the exact same conclusion, 
that the issue in Americans' diet has, isn't because we're eating too much fat, uh, quite the contrary. It's that we're eating too much carbohydrate, and fat consumption is actually good for us, according to the United States Government Dietary Advisory Committee. And even saturated fat, the dreaded saturated fat, has no relationship to risk for heart disease, as published in the April 2013 issue, uh, no, actually 2014 issue, of the Annals of Internal Medicine. A study of more than 500,000 individuals found no risk increase for heart disease in people eating tons of saturated fat. Right. And, you know, so why do we say coconut oil if you want to increase your ketosis? Because it does so, and it's high in saturated fat that humans have always eaten. You know, one of the richest uh, sources of, um, of saturated fat is human breast milk. 50% of the fat in human breast milk is saturated fat. Now, if you think there's something wrong with saturated fat, then you're going to have to answer to Mother Nature or God or somebody for making a mistake there. And I, I don't think that happened. I use that argument a lot. I, I like that one too. <laughs> um, and speaking of cholesterol, I know that there are, I don't know the numbers, but a lot of people on statins now. Uh, statins are prescribed a lot. And I'm wondering what their effect on the microbiome is. Wow, that's a very good question. And I, I don't think it's been played out yet in, in terms of uh, really characterizing um, you know, what is the effect of statin use directly on the microbiome? But I think it's going to end up being a significant um, because we, what we understand about statins is it changes certain enzyme function. And uh, as such, it increases the risk for energy issues, problems in human physiology, as well as difficulties or, or problems with how our antioxidant systems work. And that, you know, one of the things that becomes deficient uh, in, um, in statin users or, or reduced in its availability, something called coenzyme Q10. And CoQ10 is important in how our mitochondria function. And that allows me uh, to answer your question very specifically because we all know what the mitochondria are. The mitochondria are these little particles that live within each of our cells, right? And they're supposedly involved in energy production. Well, they also regulate the life and death of the cell. So, so that said, why would I be focusing on the mitochondria? Because mitochondria are actually bacteria. Mitochondria have invaded each of our cells and they, are, they, are, they represent bacteria. They have their own DNA and their DNA is not the 23,000 DNA that, uh, genes that we get from mom and dad. They have a different DNA. They have bacterial DNA that's in the shape of a circle, not um, like the karyotype of uh, the, t- you know, the typical DNA of, of humans. So when we embrace the notion that the, that the mitochondria represent our um, part of our microbiome, then we have a direct relationship uh, for um, the risk of these statin drugs. So we know that um, there are about 25 million Americans currently taking statins. And what has now been published in several journals, uh, including the Journal of the American Medical Association, is the potential increased risk of type 2 diabetes that's now been documented, that's documented, more than a 50% increased risk in women, for example, taking statin drugs, 
of getting type 2 diabetes. Now stay with me on this. I mentioned quite a while ago how type 2 diabetes by the work of Dr. Max Newdorp is directly related to changes in the gut bacteria. So Eli, what you and I just have done is we've connected two very important dots. And that may be that the effect of statin drugs in terms of its being associated with a dramatic increased risk of diabetes may well have to do with the changes in the gut bacteria. So you can be sure I'll be looking that up after uh, our interview today, but isn't that something to think about? Yes, it is. All prescription drugs and, you know, I mean, everything, I, I always say, everything you put in your body is either helping you or hurting you, and you have to make your choices appropriately. That's right. And I, as you know, in medicine, we talk about um, risk-benefit uh, of of using medications, of anything. You know, obviously, there's a place, a time and a place when things should be used. But, but that said, uh, we're not looking at the risks to any significant um, to any significant degree in terms of these new ideas that they may affect the microbiome, that they may be associated with diabetes, uh, etc. The Food and Drug Administration has now uh, required that the statin makers put on the labels that statins can affect memory. There is a thing that people talk about called statin brain. And uh, this may well have to do not only with the effect of statin on CoQ10, but the effects of statins on changing the gut bacteria, uh, which then would have a play in terms of affecting the brain. So it's all evolving, but by and large, people are, uh, are not getting this information. It's kind of very well buried. I mean, the, the relationship of statin drugs uh, to memory loss was, was news for a brief period of time. It was, you know, that was from February of 2012. It was on, in Time Magazine, et cetera. But most people don't know about it, haven't heard about it, and will take their statin drugs to lower their cholesterol because cholesterol is bad. Well, the lower your cholesterol, the higher your risk of dementia, the greater your risk of depression and committing suicide if you have a low cholesterol. We should talk about that. That's a risk. As we're talking about the benefit, that's a risk. Peer-reviewed medical journals characterize a person's risk of becoming demented and show that there's this uh, relationship to cholesterol. Lower cholesterol, higher risk of becoming demented, a situation for which there is no cure. That, that's information I think that's very, very important for, for people to understand prior to filling the prescription. Yes, I agree. I think that people, you know, again, like you said, risks and benefits, people need to look at the whole picture, not just, here's my problem, give me the pill to make my problem, quote, go away. Because it's not necessarily going away. It can be creating a host of other problems. No question. And... Um, the statin situation is really a, a real dramatic case in point about, about uh, in trying to parlay some very simple information about cholesterol into a multi-billion dollar uh, enterprise to have people take these drugs to, to get rid of a chemical that we so desperately depend upon uh, to make cortisol, uh, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, uh, and even vitamin D. So we need to reframe uh, that story. And I think through the lens of the microbiome, that story is going to evolve very, very quickly. But I'd say that 
you know, the really exciting information here is that this new information about the gut bacteria playing such an important role in health and illness is really opening up some very, very wide doors in terms of what we can do right now to regain our health today, but also to make us more resistant to disease in the future and specifically as it relates to uh, brain health and things like getting Alzheimer's or autism, depression, multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune condition. These things all relate back to these processes of immunity and inflammation, which are governed by the gut bacteria. So it's a very, very exciting time to be a neurologist, I have to say. I'm sure. It's very exciting to talk to you. And uh, is there anything you want to say in conclusion, best advice you could give any of our listeners? I'd say keep an open mind and be ready for some long-held tenants to be overturned. Um, visit my website, which is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. All of the references, the, the science references that I've talked about are there in their entirety in terms of the PDF. I blog every day. I have the videos that we talked about of a uh, child with autism being treated with fecal transplant, a man regaining the ability to walk with multiple sclerosis after fecal transplant. Interesting stuff. And um, let me say, Eli, I, I sure appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you today and, and share this information. I think it's really important. Thank you so much. And again, the new book is Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life by Dr. David Perlmutter. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you, Eli. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Mark Sisson from Mark's Daily Apple. At my blog, I talk a lot about healthy eating and why what tastes good should also be good for you. That's why I created Primal Kitchen Mayo, the first avocado oil-based mayonnaise that contains only the most nutrient-dense, all-natural ingredients. With avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt, you can use Primal Kitchen Mayo with reckless abandon. While supplies last, if you go to primalblueprint.com and enter free book at checkout, you'll receive a free copy of my famous Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings cookbook, along with your purchase of any three-pack of Primal Kitchen Mayo. Healthy Mayo? Hey, who knew? Who knew?